Welcome to the Maria Heller Show, on the net since 2000 and still going strong. If you feel like you're not getting the real news, if you feel like you're not connected spiritually, you have found your home. Maria covers a wide range of topics as only a snarky New Yorker can. Straight up, no chaser. No censorship, no corporate sponsors, thus true freedom of speech. Your subscription gives you unlimited access as a member of the smartest audience on earth. Relax and enjoy the education. Now here's Maria. Good morning world. Maria here, alive and kicking. Welcome to the show. Today I have a special guest and I want to tell you a little bit about him. His name is Dan McAdams. He is the Henry Wade Rogers Professor of Psychology and Professor of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, He writes, uh, let's see, a whole lot. He's the author of nearly 300 scientific articles and chapters, numerous edited volumes, and seven books. He works in the area of personality and lifespan development psychology. You may have seen his work featured in a lot of national publications like the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, Wall Street Journal, USA Today. And today I'm happy to have him on my show where we're going to talk about his book, The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump, A Psychological Reckoning. So good morning, Dan. Good morning. It's nice to be here. It's good to have you here on the show. You know, I read your book and left it out for for my friends to see. When they walk through the house, I have one friend who unfortunately is a big fan of Trump and tell me that I was stupid for not believing uh, that the election was stolen from him. Uh, so one thing that really... P- pisses me off is when somebody calls me stupid. Uh, But, I mean, Trump has this psychological hold on people where they believe every word he says. What do you think of that? Yeah, he's pretty mesmerizing. I think it's sort of uh, unique. I'm not sure there's ever been anybody, at least in my lifetime, in American political uh, on the American political scene who captures the imagination and the attention the way Trump does and who holds uh, you know, over millions of people in his thrall. Right. Well, unique is to say the least of it. I don't, but I don't think there's ever been a human being like him on the planet. Uh, but it is interesting, and you know, uh, that people will just buy whatever he's selling. And when he started, you know, since your book, so much has happened. Uh, but what I read this morning is his latest grift was when he said this election was illegal and he asked his fans to send him money to fight all these cases he's been losing. And they said that he's already raised $150 million more million from his fans. I mean, I can't even well, fathom me- how that's possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what you said uh, a couple of seconds ago when you said there's nobody like him on the planet or I think he's the most unusual person... I actually think you're right. I, 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 you know, I entitled the book The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump, partly because he is stranger than any category you can come up with. I mean, he's not a type. It's not like there are other psychological types out there that are sort of like Donald Trump. I really do believe that he's unique. And you see it, as you suggest, in the, you know, in the thrall he holds people in and the, the influence he has, the way in which millions of Americans will pretty much uh, go along with whatever he says, even at some level, they may think it's not true or wrong, but that's kind of OK. They give him more slack than they would give anybody else. 
Right. Well, you know, here we are in America where, you know, if you've been on TV, all of a sudden you're a star. Do you think that his television presence is part of why people laud him the way they do? Because, ooh, he was on TV. He wasn't just on TV. He dominated television there in the, in a sense, in a couple of different ways. First of all, his show, uh, you know, even when its ratings started to plummet, it, it had a captive fan base that, that was, you know, really, really powerful. And, you know, many people believe that if he hadn't, uh, you know, made The Apprentice and been the star on that show for all those years, that there's just no way he'd be at the Oval Office today. Uh, but the other part of it is that Donald Trump is inherently a TV star. He, he would be a TV star if we were talking 500 years ago before there was television. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, li- he, he has a kind of presence on the screen that he brings to everyday life. And it's not just that he's extraordinary in this regard. It's all that he is. He is a character in a television show, and that's it. There's no deeper layer to Donald Trump. He's actually not a full-fledged person the way you and I are, but he is instead a walking television persona. And I think he's got that down in a way that maybe nobody else does. Right. So he's basically what you see is what you get. Right. You know, I grew up in New York uh, at the same time. I'm sure you could tell by my accent. <laughs> I grew up in New York at the same time as Trump. Trump's only like two, three years older than me. Uh, and as a New Yorker, all New Yorkers always knew what he was. You know, an Italian word for him is a caffone, okay? Uh, and we always knew he was a crook. We always knew he was connected to the mob. Nobody builds anything in New York without it. Uh, and, and we always knew basically that he was a clown. Uh, you know, I remember, I don't remember which, I think it might have been Maya Cox that said he wouldn't believe a word out of Trump's mouth if his tongue was notarized. <laughs> so I was stunned as, a, you know, as an ex-New Yorker uh, to see that this guy actually won the presidency. <laughs> Well, you weren't the only person stunned. <laughs> uh, I think all the many people were walking around in a uh, in a daze after, and maybe for like years after, and maybe still to a certain extent. I mean, it, uh, I think it's it's kind of a post traumatic stress thing that uh, millions and millions of people experienced that night in November 2016 when he pulled it off. And uh, it is interesting, you know, you, you contrast your reaction to him as a New Yorker to reactions that other people have. I mean, after all, he did garner 74 million votes this time. It's really extraordinary. And even a few of those were from New York. And so, you know, how can this be if, in fact, people who knew him growing up and followed him in his early days knew that, you know, you couldn't believe a word that came out of his mouth, knew that he was in with the mob, knew that he was a crook, knew that he, you know, talked a big game, but, you know, didn't really deliver. People knew this, and, mm-hmm. and, but I don't think that's how people who didn't see him grow up understand him. I think their connection to Donald Trump begins, for many of them, with The Apprentice. Right. And they see him in that role of looking sort of strong and firm and definitive and firing people. And yeah, he's a clown, but he's a kind of a wit. I mean, he's a little... Funny. He can, even though he doesn't laugh, he can make other people laugh sometimes, and it's just kind of hard to take your eyes off of him. 
even if you hate them. Right. And so I, I think that's that's the that's what connects to them. And they don't care about all that stuff that you know happened back in New York. It's not relevant to them. They they don't even see him as a, a person who kind of like develops with a past, and they don't care about all that. Mm-hmm. He's he's in their mind, he's really more than a person. He's like a superhero, this sort of fixed entity, a mythic force, almost like a god in that sense, but also weirdly non-human in that they don't expect him to have the same kinds of conflicts and emotions and feelings that you and I have. Right. And so, so what if he can't show any empathy? I mean, every human being on the planet can accept him, but that doesn't really bother his fans because they don't really hold him to account. Or so what if he lies every time he opens the mouth, like maybe no other human being on the planet? It doesn't matter. He's a different kind of being, strange and compelling, I think, for millions of Americans. Well, you know, he also considers himself that above everyone else. He considers himself a god. (laughs) You know, when he was leaving the hospital with his supposed uh, COVID-19, he actually wanted to wear, and I think he was wearing, a Superman T-shirt under his shirt, and he wanted to reveal himself that way, but luckily somebody talked him out of it. You know, and, and then, I mean, Superman, come on. I don't think Superman takes Adderall and wears diapers. But uh, when you look well, at him, right. this guy, you know, I'm the healthiest, you know, I'm the healthiest president we ever had. I mean, this guy's nuts. He's a stable genius in his yeah. mind, and I, I think it actually speaks to the to something that's just profoundly strange here. That because there's a lot of narcissistic people out there who think they're great, who think they're greater than everybody else. I mean, they're a dime a dozen. Donald Trump is different from all of them, and I don't think he sees himself as a person. He's more than a person. He's like a Superman, as you suggest. But at the same time, he's less than a person, too, in that he doesn't have the kinds of basic psychological qualities that persons have, such as a conscience or such as conflict or such as doubt. He truly believes that he has never made a mistake. This isn't just this isn't just isn't just a shtick. It's kind of who he is fundamentally. And so, whereas the rest of us see ourselves as persons who develop over time, and we go through this, then we go through that, and then we learn something, then we make a mistake, and our life is like a story that unfolds over time, and we're like the main character in it, that's not how he sees himself. He sees himself as something who's always been. He's a stable genius. He kind of erupted onto the scene as this great entity, not really a person, more than a person, but not having those kinds of basic psychological things that other persons have. Mm. He just doesn't understand any of that other stuff. It's not important to him. And I just think it makes him unique. Oh, it makes him unique. Okay. But not only does he not (laughs) want to understand anything, here we have a president that doesn't even want to read. He doesn't want to learn. Uh, and anybody that stands up against him who tells the truth, whether it was the guy who certified that the election was probably the best one, the most secure one we ever had. Now Trump demonized him after he fired him. 
whoever, you know, all the best people he puts in his cabinet until they say no to him and then they get the axe and they get the axe on Twitter. Uh, he just seems to get away with a whole lot of stuff for a stable genius. To me, he belongs in a stable like Mr. Ed. Uh, but well, let's get back to this. What made you decide to write this book? I mean, it is an in-depth book. Sure. It, it was uh, not my choice. <laughs> Going way back, uh, it, it started in the spring of 2016, or actually late winter, New Hampshire primary in 2016, when Trump uh, was starting to emerge as a serious candidate on the Republican side way back there four, four and a half years ago. I got a call back in February around then uh, from the Atlantic magazine, and they asked if I might uh, be interested in writing a uh, feature-length psychological interpretation of Donald Trump's life because they were suggesting that, you know, hey, he might win this Republican nomination. And I said, first of all, there's no way he's going to win the Republican right. nomination, but sure, I'm happy to do it. But I knew almost nothing at the time about Donald Trump. The reason they asked me is that I had written a book years earlier on George W. Bush, a psychological biography, and they liked it. And so they thought I could do something similar with Trump. But I had to, like, start from scratch because, I, unlike you, I didn't grow up in New York. And, I, you know, I see him in the news a little bit, but I didn't know who Ivanka was and how that was different from Ivana. I mean, I just right. didn't know. And so I did a deep dive in the spring of 2016 uh, and eventually wrote this piece that appeared in the Atlantic uh, in June of that year called The Mind of Donald Trump. And it gets into lots of different psychological features of his life based on research I've done and others. And it was very well received and, you know, 3.5 million readers. It was wonderful. But I figured, OK, that's the end of it. I mean, he's not going to win. Right. The election. And so we saw what happened there. And even yes. after that, I was resistant. But eventually, I just kind of almost like found myself doing it unconsciously. Like right. I would you know, get up in the morning, read the paper, and then start taking notes about Trump. And before you knew it, I had a book going. And the reason, one of the big reasons I wrote the book or came back to it, I guess, is I felt that the article missed the biggest thing about him, the most unique thing about him that makes the strangest thing about him. And I, I struggled with this in the article. I was able to talk about all kinds of different psychological features of Trump, his traits, his values, his goals, but I couldn't find the story. And the big idea in my research that I've been doing for 30 years is that everybody out there is walking around with a story in their head. Mm -hmm. about how they came to be and who they are and where their life is going. I mean, this is like the main thing I study. And I couldn't find it with Trump when I wrote the original article. So I thought, I got to pursue this more. I got to figure out, like, how does he think about himself? You know, what kind of story is in his mind? And eventually I came around to the conclusion that there ain't no story there. there, there is, he doesn't live the way the rest of us do in time with a story in our minds about how we came to be and where our lives are going, mm -hmm. thinking about what I did yesterday, what I'm going to do tomorrow, how I became who I am, what I've learned over life and so forth. He doesn't do that. He's unique in that regard. I mean, just about every fully functioning human being, regardless of their intelligence level or their social class or their culture, creates a story. 
but Trump doesn't. I, and that became the key idea mm-hmm. in the book, that Donald Trump is what I call the episodic man. He lives in the episode, in the immediate moment, in the present. He doesn't think about yesterday. He doesn't have a long-term conception of the future. He never talks about the future. He never talks about the distant past. He's right here now. And that makes him extraordinarily strange, but it also gives him huge advantages that the rest of us don't have. For example, it enables him to lie with impunity. Because after all, it doesn't matter what he said yesterday. It doesn't matter what he's going to say tomorrow. It doesn't have to be consistent. The only thing that matters is that he wins in the moment, in the episode. So he wakes up every day ready to fight whatever it is, the big fight, and he has to win that fight. And he feels that he is always fighting. He's in the ring like a boxer. He's constantly on guard. And so whatever it takes to win that moment in that episode, he does it. So he'll say anything. If, he, right. if he, the election was illegal, fine. He's got to say that today to win the battle that he feels he's in. Then he goes to bed. Then he wakes up the next day. And it's like completely different because it could be a different battle and so forth. So it, these episodes that he fights to win day after day after day, they don't add up. They don't like connect in his head to a narrative or a story. It's almost like that old movie, Memento, 20 years ago, where the guy wakes up every morning, has no memory of the past. He's like eternally in the present. Donald Trump lives like that, not because he has a cognitive deficit, not because he can't remember and can't think of the future, but because he chooses not to. And that is because he feels he is under constant and unremitting threat. And that's how he lives. But it works for him. It's right. always worked for him. Uh, it gives him a kind of immediacy and, a, and a, st- a strength in the moment that the rest of us just can't summon up. I right. Think. Right. The rest of us are stuck in Groundhog Day. And I have to tell you that <laughs> even all these years later, I still can't realize that he is the president. It still goes beyond what my mind can handle. Uh, so it still freaks me out. You know, I, when you talked about he gives us a form of PTSD, I remember a few months ago I had to go to my doctor because I was having anxiety. And he says, what's wrong? And I said, I have Trump, Trump anxiety disorder. And he, he, he must have been a Trump fan, so he tried to tell me, well, you know, no presidents are good. I said, are you kidding? This guy's a hundred times worse than anything I've ever seen. Uh, but, you know, maybe we should, instead of PTSD, we should call it, you know, post-Trump uh, disorder. Uh, and I think a lot of people feel that way. Listen, as far as the election, my opinion is they couldn't have picked a worse person to run against him. That's, to me, the only reason he got in. They never should have put Hillary against him, but that's my opinion. Uh, but when you talk about him like that movie Memento, which took me a while to wrap my head around while I was watching that, what is this about? Uh, but you, you explained it perfectly. So here we have somebody that's desperate to win. He starts fights with people just so he could win. How do you think, knowing what you've written about his, uh, psychological profile, how do you think he truly feels about losing Mr. You know, you're fired. How do you think he feels about losing the top job in the world? 
he doesn't think he lost the job, top job in the world in the same way that he doesn't think he's ever made a mistake, in the same way that he believes that none of his Atlantic City casinos in the 1990s went bankrupt. He truly believes he won. He truly believes that 3 million people in 2016, uh, the, the 3 million vote difference between him and Hillary, where Hillary won the popular, he believes that those were illegal immigrants. It's like we keep thinking, we, we keep trying to make Donald Trump normal. We keep asking questions like, well, what's he really think and so forth? He, he is what you see. Mm-hmm. So when he says that the election was stolen and illegal, we're going, yeah, he's just saying that he doesn't really believe it. No, no, he believes it. He believes it today because that's what he has to believe in order to win. This is what makes him a lot stranger than every other narcissistic person out there, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of them out there. Right. There are a lot of people who are arrogant and annoying right. and who like believe that they're the greatest in the world. But I don't believe any of them, at least that I've ever encountered, has this kind of understanding of time that he has, that you're just living right now in the moment. And so there isn't any reality behind what you see with Donald Trump. That's why, to return to our original topic, he is like a reality TV persona and not like a full-fledged person. Right. Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he feels the day he has to leave the White House. Like the big baby he is, he's threatening not to go to the inauguration. He's threatening to set up one of his Hitler rallies on the same day as the inauguration. He's already saying he's going to run again in 2024, like he must think he's going to live forever. How do you think he's going to leave? And will, will the reality hit him when he's no longer in the White House? He's 74 years old. The reality has never hit him. It's not going to start hitting him suddenly at age 74 and a half. Mm. Uh, he, he's, he is what you see, and he'll always be like this. So I think what he says, much of that is probably going to happen. I, I have a hard time imagining him at the inauguration of Joe Biden. I, I mean, it's possible he'll sit there, but I think mainly he won't. I, I, think it's, I think it's quite possible that he'll do something to try to distract from the inauguration, if not on the day of, maybe after a few days later and hold a big rally. He will continue to be, in his mind, the president, in a sense, or at least the, the one who is legitimate. He will believe that the election was stolen. Uh, he'll never admit that he's a loser, and not because deep down he knows he's a loser. There is no deep down. He doesn't think he's ever lost. Wow, that's really sick. I mean, so let me ask you this. Do you think that he's mentally insane or just a really shrewd criminal? It's a good question. I mean, so the issue of being insane, or I guess in my field, psychology, we say, does he have a mental illness? And, uh, you know, many people have said, listen, he fits what's called a narcissistic personality disorder. And that is a particular illness, if you will, in the, in the categorization. And I guess he does sort of, except that the cardinal criterion in that or disorder is that you uh, aren't able to kind of like get along and get ahead in life. Well, he's the president of the United States. So he has gotten along and gotten ahead, even though he's probably the most hated man on the planet, even though there are millions of people who detest him, he is the president. He's been successful, uh, even if we don't like perhaps the way in which he's done it. So I kind of I step away from these diagnostic categories. I'm not sure it's helpful uh. to say that he has a mental illness. And even if we did, 
So what? So did Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was probably severely depressed. I think he would meet the criteria for chronic depression today. Mm. He would probably be medicated, Abraham Lincoln. Yet no one's saying he wasn't fit to be president. So I, I think the psychological disorders and the mental illnesses and the insanity idea, I don't, I'm not sure they're all that useful because I think Trump is actually way stranger than all of that. Right, right. Well, you know, the strange case of Donald Trump, it's a comparison to Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, but truthfully, with Trump, it just seems what you see is what you get. That's exactly right. I, it's kind of ironic because in the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you thought it was one person. and It turns out to be two. It turns out that one person is two different people. He's both Dr. Jekyll, who's a public, well, upstanding guy, and Mr. Hyde, who's a beast. Uh -huh. Well, in Mr. Trump's case, it's the reverse. You know, we expect now, you know, 130 years after the writing of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, we expect that everybody's got lots of different parts to themselves, right? We're all complicated. So you meet me today, but you don't really know me. I've got these different sides of myself that I'm keeping under wraps. And we all kind of accept that. But Trump is a throwback. He's, it's almost like he's a human being of the sort that you would like maybe imagine a thousand years ago when psychology didn't even exist and people, as we imagine it, might have been a little bit simpler, if you will. He, he is just one thing. He's, he is the thing that you see. He is the persona that you see. And there's nothing inside. So it's not like there's a, a Mr. Hyde inside of Dr. Trump. There's Mr. Trump. There's nothing inside of him. There's no story there. There's no conflicts. There's no inner space. And I say this not just by proclamation. For decades, people have been trying to get inside Mr. Trump's head. Journalists, biographers, his family, they've all come to the same conclusion. And that is there isn't anything in there. Now, some people think that's fine, like his family and his fans. They don't expect there to be all kinds of complicated mental calculations going inside there because he's brilliant on instinct, if you will, like a primal beast in that regard. The people who hate him, by contrast, and you know, think he's very poorly fit to be president, expect that there should be something going on in his mind, some kind of rational calculus, right. something that we don't see. But, but it's, it's, not not, it's, it's not happening. It's like Peter Sellers. Uh, in that movie, yeah. uh, God, I forgot the name of it. With uh, yeah, being there, I being think. there, yeah. right? I mean, he is being there. He is that character. Uh, but here's yeah. the other, here's another thing, though. How is it possible? All right, we already know what he is. He's running on empty. How is it that the entire Senate is still backing him? How is it all these journalists are so afraid of him? Why is everybody so afraid of this man? Because he got 74 million votes. And no, nobody's ever gotten that many before except Joe Biden, his opponent. Hi. I mean, he's got the base. And, it, and it's not just a few hundred thousand folks. It's, you know, he, so 74 million people voted for him. Now, they didn't all vote for him out of, like, deep and abiding love. Maybe half of them did. Hi. So maybe it's only, like, 37 million or something. But that is a huge chunk of Hi. the American populace. And it is basically the Republican constituency. So, you know, with the exception of a few of them, very, very few senators across the country, governors and congresspersons who are Republican and in office now, 
if they open their mouth and come out against Trump, they're dead in the next election. He still remains the most popular Republican by far. And they're afraid. They're, they're scared out of their minds. The only ones who come out against him are former Republican uh, you know, senators and so forth, like Jeff Flake in Arizona and so forth. Right. And a few people who seem to be somewhat secure, like Mitt Romney, uh, who's really garnered a lot of respect in my mind for standing up to the man. Right. Well, you know, the people now are writing articles and worried uh, that once Trump is out of office, that he can't be trusted with national security secrets. Uh, he, I mean, let's face it, he is the king of loose lips, sink ships. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I'm just as afraid. I've been scared all along about the loose lips, sinking ships. We've already seen that he has, you know, uh, doesn't seem to have a whole lot of regard for uh, national security. He has no interest or, or respect for our intelligence agencies uh, and so forth. I mean, he's opposed to most of the institutions that make our government run. Uh, it's, you know, deeply ironic that, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the, the chief executive of the United States government has no respect for government period for any of the agencies mm-hmm. under him and so forth, unless, of course, they kowtow to him and just, you know, follow his every word. So, yeah, I'm concerned about that. And as an ex-president, in our mind, although he'll still be president in some sense in his own mind, he continues to pose a threat. Uh, and uh, you, you could see him, I guess, in the months going forward as uh, almost operating like a deposed president of a third world nation where, you know, there's a coup and the president has to leave or whatever, goes overseas and then uh, becomes a kind of uh, what do you what would you say president in exile if you will right. in trump's case he doesn't have to go overseas he can just like take on or use the platform of right-wing media to continue his like daily campaign to completely continue to win as the president even though he's not the president but he may be seen as you know, this legitimate alternative right. to the Biden administration. You know, when Kellyanne Conway talked about alternative facts four years ago, right. I mean, she was prescient because this is an alternative reality. And he's like an alternative president going forward. Uh, well, that's kind of scary because, you know, a lot, so, several of his fans are mental cases that are very dangerous. Just like when he said to the Proud Boys, you know, stand, stand back, stand by. And I think that if he gets back on TV or a radio show, he's going to spend every day ragging on whatever it is Biden is doing. That's my For opinion. Sure. I could very easily it, see him doing that. I, I can, too. I, 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 in fact, I have a hard time imagining him not doing it, to tell you the truth. Uh, it, it's hard to know what would stop him. Perhaps a health, uh, you, know, you know, as you point out, he's not going to live forever and he's not in great shape. Uh, that that could slow him down. I mean, there, there could be these these lawsuits may slow him down. I mean, uh, there's issues with respect to the investigations of his um, finances uh, in the Southern District of New York and Cyrus Vance. Those right. kinds of investigations may yield fruit that could distract him. But you know, he loves that stuff. Right. I mean, you know, people used to say when he was being impeached. I remember I talked to a couple of journalists and they say, "Oh, he's cracking up. Right? He can't take the pressure." I go, "What are you talking about?" He's been impeached every day of his life. Going back to second grade, people have been out there trying to get him. 
Huh. Wouldn't you? I mean, he provokes it. He loves this kind of thing. He lives for it. Right. Well, he likes to tear other people down to make himself look good. He's the typical schoolyard bully. Uh, and always getting somebody else to fight his battles for him. But I'm hoping that, you know, he'll end up in jail or prison. And then then nobody has to worry about it. Maybe he'll even get Jeffrey Epstein's uh, cell. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) and Bill Barr can visit him a day before. Uh, Dan, (laughs) I'm glad you like my sense of humor. I know it's very dry and it's very New York. Dan, we need to take a short break. Stay with us. Dan McAdams and I will be right back. Hi, this is Maria. I don't often get to talk directly to the listeners here on the Gary Knoll Network, but I felt like doing that today. I know a lot of you really enjoy my show, but you might not know that I do four shows a week over at my website, maria.net. So if you're loving the show you get to hear on Sunday, come on over to my site and subscribe because I've got hundreds of hours of great shows on pretty much every topic in the universe. Uh, And that, again, is maria.net, M-E-R-I-A.net. And now we can get back to this excellent show. Thanks. Okay, welcome back. I'm speaking with Dan McAdams, The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump, A Psychological Reckoning. Uh, So I'm really happy to have Dan with me. And, And I really think you should all read this, even though Trump's on his way out, let's hope permanently. Uh, because you really need to understand, because like he said, there's never been a person, using the word person loosely, like him, I don't think, on the face of the earth. Uh, so here's, a new, here's another one for you that I've been trying to wrap my head around, Dan. Trump loses the election. Spontaneous parties start, not only in the streets of America, where people are out dancing and celebrating, but all across the world. Now, you got to tell me, what kind of person wouldn't be destroyed by that alone? It's a good question. It would destroy me. I know that. Uh, yeah, I'd never want to come out of my house for the rest of my life. Yeah, but you know, he's, he's had this before. I mean, he has been up against it before. You know, we talk about, you know, how he has 74 million voters and he has all these fans, but of course... He also has the 80 million who voted against him, and he has so many enemies. And it is sort of hard for me to kind of imagine being Donald Trump in this regard, knowing that, you know, there are so many people out there who really, really do hate you. But at the same time, I think at some level, that's kind of what he lives for, too. He is the fighter, and a fighter doesn't have an identity unless there's an opponent. And there are always opponents. There are always people counterpunching at him as he views it. And he's right. I mean, I mean, you know, Trump has a philosophy of life. Uh, he told this to People magazine 40 years ago in a, in a rare moment of introspection. Somebody asked him, you know, Mr. Trump, what's your philosophy of life? And he goes, this is what it is. Man is the most vicious of all animals. And life is a series of battles ending in victory or defeat. That's it. 20 words. That's his philosophy of life. And I think this, you know, when people are out there dancing in the streets because they think you lost the election, those fools, right? Here's mine. Uh, that just feeds into that philosophy of life. Yeah. Everybody's vicious or except for the people who love me and you got to keep fighting. And at one level, I kind of admire it in a way. I mean, he's really resilient. Uh, You know, a lot of bad things have happened in his life. He's had a lot of setbacks, and he doesn't see any of them 
as setbacks, he manages the soldier on. Right. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And I think many of his fans respect that about him. That's one of the things they like. He is a fighter. My brother, who's never voted in his life, called me before in 2016 and said, Dan, what do you think of Donald Trump? He didn't know I'd written an article on it. Right. I said, well, yeah, I think he's a little dangerous. I go, Jeff, are you thinking of voting? He goes, you're damn right I'm going to vote. Huh. I go, and you're going to vote for Trump? He goes, he's a warrior. Oh, God. So I got my brother to vote for him, who's never voted before. Uh, and I, I think, you know, that's appealing to some people. They ask these Christian conservative women, you know, like, how can you vote for this guy? Because, you know, look, at he's an adulterer. He, you know, he, he abuses women. He doesn't respect women. He does. He lies. You know, right. it doesn't seem like he does anything that's consistent with a Christian understanding of life. Right. And they go, well... I'm not looking for a husband. I'm looking for a bodyguard, all right? I'm looking for somebody who's going to fight for me. Oh, I think many people in America feel they need somebody to fight for them. And for better and for worse, Trump's fighting. He's fighting for himself, right. but they think he's fighting for them. Right, they're getting nothing, okay? I mean, <clears throat> what, one stimulus check? What was that, in May? You know, come December, Merry Christmas, everybody, there's going to be something like 12 million evictions, 26 million already starving in America. I mean, what has he really done for anybody, even his own fans? You know, uh, and wherever he travels, let's not forget, you know, especially Texas, which went, pretty much went for Trump this time. Texas is like rampant with COVID-19. They have the longest food lines I've seen uh, in all the videos I've been watching. So how is it that people can continually vote against their own interests? That's another puzzling question in my head. Well, yeah, well, Democrats have been asking that for years. I mean, because, uh, you know, really, if you go, it probably goes back to Ronald Reagan. I mean, you've got this situation where many uh, people in America vote Republican, even though the policies of the party generally do not are not designed to lift up people who are struggling Although the argument could be made that through free enterprise that might happen. But in the case of Trump, I mean, you're exactly right. It's not like he's done anything tangible that's going to improve people's lives economically. But I think it's, it's, that's not the t issue for them. I, I, think, I think it's almost spiritual in some sense. There wow. was this extraordinary article, I thought, on the Monday before the election in the New York Times. They interviewed this Nebraska farmer, relatively young guy in his 30s really great person, seemed like a you know, solid year kind of guy. And, and you know, he's voting for Trump. And they ask him, like, how could you vote for this horrible person? <laughs> Basically, they ask him, he says, for the last four years, for the first time in my life, I felt like I belong in this country. I feel like this country is part of me. He didn't feel that before. Something that Trump did made him feel that he's now an American in a way he never felt it before. I don't fully understand it, but I think it has something to do with the fact that the modern world has left many Americans behind, mm -hmm. especially those who are older and white and not so well educated and who, you know, who feel like they're just not, you know, at the top of the heap anymore. And um, Trump comes along and, you know, sells them this sort of like America first, make America great again kind of toxic. You know, right. sort of uh, right. medicine, and it sort of lifts their spirits spiritually. I mean, look at people at the Trump rallies. 
they're like deliriously oh ecstatic. i know they look like they're possessed there. i know they look like it's like they're possessed it is it's like they yeah. need a major exorcism there <laughs> but here you have people and I, and i have to say first of all we've always known that donald trump was a racist okay uh, I've known that since, you know, anybody working at, you know, any of his buildings in New York, if any, somebody wanted to rent there, their their rental agents were told to put a big C on their application to stand for colored, uh, which meant they weren't getting in Trump's building. But he also wouldn't let blind people in his buildings either. I mean, this guy thinks he's perfect. And, you know, you, we've seen him make fun of people that are disabled. So if their fans, his fans think that they, he's given them something, I think he's given them permission to be okay with being a racist like him. Yeah, I think there's probably something to that to a certain extent. You know, I you have also that... for a lot of... God, I'm sorry. Dan. I think for a lot of his fans, race is just not... They, they know it's an issue, but it's not an important issue. Yeah, okay? but they, they know, that, they know that whites are no longer in the majority in this country. And that terrifies them. And I often wonder, here's another point I ponder, why are they so afraid of the whites being the, the minority? Are they afraid that minority people will treat them the way we've been treating them? Not me personally. Okay, but I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I, I don't know. I, I think there are just lots of different perspectives on that. I, I think in general, many people in America don't, don't really follow the demographic trends. They sense that, you know, the, the nation is becoming more and more dominated, if you will, by uh, so-called minority groups. They don't really know that in the year 2042 or something like that, we're going to become a majority minority country. They, they don't know that tangibly, but they have a sense that things are sort of slipping away from them. It's not just race, though. I mean, race is huge, but it's not just that. It's it's, 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 there's just something about they're not, it's like this farmer in, in Nebraska. I'm not sure he ever really thinks about race and I'm, he may be somewhat racist, but I think it's something else. I think he just feels like he's left behind. I mean, the, you know, th there's a huge urban rural divide in this. I mean, it's probably the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest demographic predictor, people who live in small towns and in rural America, they, they, they you know, strongly vote for Trump. And I think they just sort of feel that all of culture is sort of like going ahead of them and they, they can't keep up and they don't relate to it. So it's part race, but it's, it's other things too. This sense of nostalgia that once upon a time, life was better for people like me. We were respected. We were, we were at the center and now we're not. We're at the periphery. And uh, maybe it's because we're white, but it may be other factors, too. Maybe it's because I'm a farmer. Maybe it's because I don't have enough education. Uh, maybe it's because I can't relate to these television shows that are so slick and all these really beautiful urban people running around and doing these things that I just can't relate to that. And here's this big guy who's like, you know, really primal and he's a throwback to the 1950s, this mesmerizing character and he, he speaks my language, you know, he's not trying to like outwit me or use fancy terms. I can relate to this guy. Plus he's a fighter. I need somebody to fight for me. I'm doing my best to try to channel what I think many Trump supporters uh, feel. If I don't do this, then I have to tell myself that 74 million people are either stupid or evil. And I don't want to tell myself that. 
Right. I know it's hard to believe for sure. And, you know, especially the, the way the Christian right has accepted him as their new Messiah. Uh, I don't even get that. Here you have a man who's been married. You know, he's got five children from three different wives. Uh, he's ignored, as far as I know, he's ignored all his children most of their lives. Uh, you never see him even in a picture with his youngest son, Baron, playing ball or anything else. That kid... It always looks to me like you know, every picture I've seen of him, he looks like a potential serial killer in the making. Um, and, and yet, you know, with all his adultery, with all his rape charges, you know, all this against him, his lying, constant lying, the Christians still back him. I just don't get it. Is the, is the abortion issue that, that important to these Christians that they would sell out everything else about being a Christian? I don't think it's the abortion issue from, for all of them. I think it is for some of them. Uh, I grew up an evangelical Christian, and I can, I can kind of relate here. Um, Trump is a, has the same worldview that we Baptists had when I was growing up in Gary, Indiana, going to Glen Park Baptist Church. It's the same worldview, and that is that they're out to get us that it's a tough world out there, that we Christians need to hold firm because we're a persecuted minority, that the world is evil and vicious and you need to be saved. And Donald Trump believes that too, except for the being saved part. You know, he doesn't have that piece, but basically he sees the world as a place where, you know, it, it, it's vicious and they're out to get you and you're going to be besieged. And you need to have a strong leader to fight that off. And so I think there is something that resonates for many. I mean, you are correct. Probably his strongest constituency is white evangelical Christians mm -hmm. in the United States uh, and conservative white Catholics as well. Partly it's abortion and partly it's his channels, uh, their, their fears and their, and their sensibility about how this world works. Um, this tangible material world that we live in here, not the next life, but this life. Uh, and uh, so there's just something there. He, I don't know if he even gets it. I don't, I don't think Trump quite understands why he is so appealing to Christian evangelicals. Uh, but I, I think there is a kind of a deep connection there. But you know he plays them. As soon as, I don't know if you caught Paula White's uh, prayer. I don't even know if you want to call it a prayer drumming that she did uh, to, to call in the angels from Africa. But, I mean, it was so insane. It reminded me of my uh, grandmother's Pentecostal friends who used to speak in tongues. Uh, and he just makes fun of them behind their backs, just like he did of our soldiers being losers and suckers, uh, calling everybody losers and suckers, basically. That, those are his favorite words. Uh, and now he's the biggest loser. Uh, and that's a title he doesn't like because uh, I don't know if you follow social media, but over the weekend, uh, the hashtag diaper, da diaper Don not only went viral in America, it went viral worldwide and he lost his mind. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there are ways of getting him pissed off without question of a doubt. He's not always, you know, Johnny Cool. But the thing is, do you ever see him be affectionate? with anybody not really um he he can he can show some 
kindness to people who are being kind to him. But uh, what he can't do is summon up empathy for another person's pain. Uh, I, I just think it's not, he's just not physically able to do this. I mean, his supporters will say that he doesn't want to look weak, so he holds it back. But again, I don't think Trump holds anything back because there's nothing inside to hold back. I, I do, I just, this just isn't part of his human arsenal. Uh, you know, when they were, when they were handing out the empathy, uh, pills or whatever, right. uh, he didn't, he wasn't there to take one. And so he, I mean, in this, in this regard, I mean, Joe Biden is such a dramatic contrast. It's not funny. I mean, Biden has got empathy on steroids. I mean, right. he's probably the most empathic president we've had may, ever in my lifetime. I mean, uh, and so, yeah, the contrast on that is just, you know, kind of over the top remarkable. But yeah, Trump can't do it. I mean, it's like, you know, my I, I'm, I all my life I played basketball and I, I, I wasn't very good. And I always wanted to be able to dunk the ball. I never was able to do that. I can't dunk a basketball. I've finally come to terms with it now in my 60s. <laughs> Trump can't do empathy. Right. Just can't. Right. Well, it's, he's just a selfish one, probably the most selfish criminal I've ever seen. I mean, he and his family are no longer legally allowed to run a charity because they stole money from their children's cancer charity. I mean, this is to me like the lowest of the low. All his businesses basically have failed. And here he is still running a grift on his fans, which you know are poor as shit, okay? Most of them are in the red state, uh, red states. And yet he manages to squeeze another $150 million out of them because he wants to fight the stolen election, which you know that money's going right in his pocket. Well, he's going to need more than 150 million if, if in fact that you know the bills come due. I mean, uh, he, he's he's uh, uh, so yeah. It, it, it'll be interesting going forward to see how that kind of all plays out. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I sympathize with what you're saying, and, and to go back to one of your earlier points too, how, how you know behind closed doors he may criticize uh, evangelicals in the same way that he calls fallen soldiers, losers, and suckers. I mean, this is this is some of the most abominable behavior that has ever occurred on the part of a president. And so, like, what, what do his supporters think? I think they don't believe it. I just think they don't believe it. There's just some things they refuse to believe, and I think that might be one of them. It could very well be. And listen, I, you know, I'm looking at how he's destroyed and lost most of his uh, legal team, you know, except for, you know, Rudy Giuliani, who's looking for a pre-pardon uh, for himself. He hasn't been convicted of anything, but he's already looking for a pre-pardon, like most of them are. Uh, and he's got a lot of lawsuits that he can't run away from. You know, the New York, New York State, D.C., there's so many, uh, the state of Virginia. Where's he going to get, where will he ever find a lawyer, let alone money to pay for a lawyer to defend him, since he's pretty much burned through every lawyer from William Barr on down? Yeah, right. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out, too. I mean, you know, we could have asked these questions years ago, too. How, who's ever going to do this for him? Who's ever going to do that? He always manages to kind of uh, to find somebody to do his bidding. Uh, it's always amazing to me. And when you see, you know, look at Bill Barr, a man who had a, a pretty well-respected reputation before he joined this administration. Uh, and now we see, I guess, his true colors. And it's just, you know, it's just cringeworthy to, to see how he has played supplicant to the, uh, 
to the to the commander in chief here and, and basically sold out the department of the Department of, of Justice. Mm-hmm. In terms of lawsuits, you know, oh my God, Trump lives by them. He's had them his entire life. And usually what happens is he kind of just waits them out. I mean, he, he sues everybody under the sun and, you know, he's got, you know, 45 different lawsuits going at any given time and a team of lawyers uh, managing them. Uh, eventually he settles sometimes, sometimes he loses a suit, sometimes he wins, but he just kind of just keeps it going. And in a lot of cases, it just wears everybody down. Will he be able to continue to do that now after the presidency? To me, it seems like he won't be able to. But mm-hmm. I might have predicted that in the 1990s, that he wouldn't have right. been able to weather that storm either. I mean, he was like $3 billion in the hawk yeah, at but one that, point, and the, right. banks, the banks decided he was too big to fail. Well, you know, that was his personal life. The destruction and damage that he's caused to the country, uh, I don't believe he should be let off the hook since he claims to be, you know, the president of law and order. We need to throw some of that law and order his way. Because otherwise, the, the entire presidency will always be a joke. The rest of the world will never respect us again. So he has to be prosecuted. Uh, otherwise, I mean, we might as well just toss the experiment that was America. Well, we had a prosecution. It was called the impeachment. And we saw in that case that uh, the Senate was spineless. I mean, it was a clear, a clear violation of powers there. I mean, it was an abuse of the office. It was it, it, at least as extreme as Nixon, probably right. a lot more so. Right. And uh, only one senator, Republican senator, had the chutzpah or the guts to to to, to vote to convict. The rest of them just lay down because they're afraid of the Trump base. Well, I'll tell you what, that district attorney, Letitia, in New York, is. I got my money on her. Okay. I grew up in New York, and the last thing you want to do is ever think that you're going to win a battle with a black New York woman. Good luck to you. Uh, so I'm going to bet my money on her and see what happens. Dan, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It's been very interesting. And all the uh, facts and everything that you dug up on Trump is in the book, The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump. Maybe uh, all you listeners who have family and friends who are still Trump fans, maybe you should buy this for them and maybe it'll help to break the spell. Anyway, Dan, thank you so much again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, you take good care. Take care. Bye. Dan McAdams. So uh, listen, you got to read the book to really get everything we were talking about. Who lives on the world and doesn't have a story? Only the thing that is the cold the Chonald J. Trump. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the show. I'll be back on Thursday with the news, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening and supporting The Maria Show. Tell others what you learned today. Knowledge becomes wisdom only when it's shared. Encourage others to subscribe today. www.maria.net Often imitated, never duplicated. A world of information all in one place. www.maria.net Always ahead of the curve. Always on your side. Get active or get radioactive. Subscribe today.